Ooh, hello, and welcome to episode 36 of Curiosityness. I'm Travis DeRose, the host, and this episode I have on Dennis Griffin, and he's uh, an author of um, just a bunch of mob and organized crime related books and and everything like that and he has some interviews posted but um we just talk about his experience with his sources and and meeting you know the lawmen and the mobsters and and how he kind of got to hang out with all these guys and build relationships with with guys from you know the movies like casino and and goodfellas and everything like that so Dennis is just super, super interesting to talk to. He's got a lot of crazy stories, and uh, it was really fun to do this podcast. Um, so well, that's coming up, but real quick, I'm also giving away free curiosityness stickers. 100% free. You heard it. That's right. Even free shipping and handling. You don't have to enter a credit card. For real. It's free. Uh, that's right. You can go to... Uh, they're like... They look like 3D glasses. They're pretty cool. I think they're cool. I designed them, but uh, hopefully you'll like them. You can go to curiosityness.com slash free sticker. Free sticker or free stickers? It's either one of those. All one word, and uh, you can get your free one, and I'll mail it to you. Uh, But that's it. So now we're going on, and here is the episode with Dennis Griffin. And we are going. How's it going, Denny? Great. Great, Travis. How are you today? I'm doing good. Thank you. Thanks for being on. You're welcome. My pleasure. So you've done, you've had a pretty cool, um, you've almost had like two careers, it seems like, because you started off, you worked in law enforcement in New York State for for a while. You had a whole career there, right? I did. And then now you're, you've, how many books have you written now? It's It's crazy. I think uh, the one that just came, uh, one was released this past Tuesday, and that was number eighteen. Number eighteen, <laughs> that's crazy! <laughs> wow. So, when was it? How long ago did you retire from, or when did you start writing books? I guess. How long has this been going on? Okay, I retired in nineteen ninety four from New York State. Uh huh. And in nineteen ninety four, the end of ninety four, in uh, around November, I started writing my first manuscript. So it's oh, okay. Been, Going on 25, 25 years as a as a writer. Yeah, longer, wow. longer than I was in uh, investigator or law enforcement. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You really have had two careers. That's awesome that you found. Have you always been interested in like while you had your career in, in law enforcement in New York? Were you kind of interested in in book writing, or had, did this just kind of arise? Never, out of- never entered my mind. It never entered my mind. I was always fairly good. Uh, on report writing, um, you know, doing comprehensive reports that people could understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I never thought about anything other than that. And as I found out, writing a report is a whole different uh, animal than writing a book. So <laughs> I can uh, imagine, yeah. It, yeah, it's been quite an educational experience for me. And I'm a one-fingered typist. Oh, wow. So I still type after 25 years or going on 25 years. I'm still a one-finger typist, but some days I get that finger really cranking. Boy, I'll tell you, I pump out a lot of words. But uh, when I watch professional typists do it, or somebody's had training, like my wife, for example, she took typing in high school, mm-hmm. and uh, I'll, I'll watch her going, and I get very jealous. Right. 
how many could I have had out of it? Could I type, you know? <laughs> yeah, really. That one finger typing. Yeah, it's like, but I mean, it's been so long. Are you, can you even make the change anymore? Could, do you think you could go to the, the typical typist style? I don't think so. Yeah. I, I, I think I'm, this is it for me. It's just, I've reached my level as far as typing goes. I, <laughs> I, would, I just accept my limitations as Clint Eastwood might say, man, it's no limitations. I know mine when it comes to that. So right. I don't, I don't torture myself uh, worrying about it. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I do like a weird, I'm not a, a one finger typist, but I have like a weird kind of hybrid thing where I, I kind of do all my fingers, but I can't, I have to look at the keyboard still. I can't look up at the screen. So I'm not the best typist, but, but we'll get by, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Right. <laughs> Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I would really love to, the way I found you was through your, you know, your book popped up on Amazon, the, uh, the battle for Las Vegas. And that was your second book you wrote. Is that right? That was my second nonfiction. I, I started out as a fiction writer. Oh, okay. And in fact, I, as I mentioned previously, I never intended to write a book, but a case I worked on as an investigator for New York state involved a medical examiner's office and uh, illegally, uh, well, actually it was body stealing. I didn't even know that statute was still on the books until I got involved in it. Um, and then taking body parts in a very bizarre case. Wow. And when uh, I, I decided uh, one day after I retired, I was uh, had moved to Vegas from, uh, from upstate New York. And I was on my... Uh, tail ends of a 12-pack watching a doubleheader football game. And I said, maybe I should write a book about this. Maybe I should write a book about this. So my wife had stashed a, uh, an electric typewriter, it was, but it was old. And uh, I didn't like to never type before. But so I, I was putting the beers down, and I said, yeah, let me write a chapter, see how it goes. And of course, I had no idea about spacing or tabs or any of that stuff. I just started Type. Mm-hmm. I got all done, finished my ball pack, and I had maybe four pages. Uh, I said, I was kind of proud of myself, you know. So I called my wife out. I says, Hey, I said, Come out, take a look what I did. So she comes out. I go to show her the papers. I had the last couple of swallows of beer in my can. I tipped the beer over and drenched my manuscript. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I threw my arms up in the air. I said, I'm getting a message here. This is not. To be, you know. Right. <laughs> but my wife, she took the papers and dried them out. And the next day, she gave them to me. She said, "Here," she said, "Here's, uh, here's the start of your book." So oh, nice. Resurrected it and then uh, started it again. And finally, I graduated to a word processor. Then I hired a typist, and eventually, I came out of the dark ages and got a computer. But it was, uh, <laughs> it was quite an operation to get going. But that was that was how I got my start. And after I wrote the uh, the story, I fictionalized it, fictionalized account, but all the details were in there. Oh. I never intended to write another book. You know, mm-hmm. I just want the story because most people wouldn't believe that kind of thing could happen. Right. And uh, I got to say, I started getting the book got out and I started getting a few reviews and I kind of got the book. I got, I was smitten, as they say. So mm-hmm. then I wrote another one based on some personal experiences and then another one and then i did some uh, male female las vegas homicide detectives three books with the same team and and finally i ended up then switching in uh, around 2001 
from fiction to nonfiction. That's how I get into the organized crime stuff. Okay. So the first ones were, they were based on actual things that had happened, um, but the, the overall story was fiction. The story was, uh, it was fact-based fiction. Actual okay. events, the types of things that took place, but different names, different locations, that type of thing. I see. And these were kind of just based on things that you had uh, found or or just kind of experienced when you were cases, working? Yes, cases I had investigated personally, wow. those, those types of things. And uh, it was fun because I didn't have to do much research because I had actually done, so I knew from A to Z what had happened, you know. Right. Uh, but I, I did find that uh, even though I went fictionalized these books, readers are funny, funny people sometimes. <laughs> and for example, the uh, the first book I did was called The Morgue, and it was about these irregularities uh, and body stealing. And somebody read that. Of course, the first thing they said, they said was, "This could never happen," so on and so forth. Um, and so I let it go with that. I mean, I didn't argue and fight with people, you know, about it. I just said, oh, if they want to think it could never happen, that's okay. Mm -hmm. Then I got a, um, uh, when I did my first Las Vegas-based serial rapist case, murderers, a rapist murderer case, um, I had the killer dump a body uh, off a Boulder Highway just outside of Vegas. And it was, there was nothing there but a sign for the Sam Boyd Stadium, the UNLB football. And some, it was set in 2000. Somebody read it and uh, sent me an email about, what's the matter with you? There's four stores in that corner. There's two convenience store gas stations and a pizza wow. shop. I, I, you I never heard from the guy again, but, but, but people will, uh, will, will pick at you, you know, and, uh, and, and, and let you know if they think you didn't do something right. Wow. <laughs> Jeez. So you kind of almost had, you felt maybe like an obligation to start doing nonfiction then because people were reading it that yeah. way, sort of. Well, what, what happened was, actually, I was kind of treading water. The, the mystery thriller genre is uh, some very good writers out there with, with huge followings. And mm -hmm. they, they can sell, uh, you know, they're able to produce, it seems like, a book a month. I, I think some of them have writers working for them. But wow. um, their names, just on their name, they, they, they sell thousands or tens of thousands of copies. So I was tre kind of treading water. Uh, I wasn't moving up the chain as far as becoming a well-known fiction uh, writer. Mm -hmm. So I was going to find another hobby. And I was at a writer's conference, and I told one of the instructors, uh, one of the speakers during a, a break, I said, you probably won't see me at the conference next year because I'm seriously thinking about, you know, trying some, my hand at something different. And she, we were in a break area having a coffee, and she said, with your background, why don't you do police procedurals? I said, no, oh, I never thought of that. 
So she had written the history of the Indiana State Police, and she said maybe, she said, a good spot, uh, since you're a part-time Vegas resident, you could do the history of the Las Vegas Police. And she said, I'll send you, you know, all the information about how to do it and how I did it, uh, you know, with the Indiana people. Mm-hmm. So uh, she did, and I eventually made a proposal to the Las Vegas Metro, and the undersheriff called me into his office to talk to me about you know, because I would need their cooperation, obviously, if I was going to do a history of the police. Um, it turned out he was a historian. He was all ready to go. But then he hit me with this. He said, well, he said, I was only going to do Las Vegas Metro was relatively new from 1975. Prior to that, they had two different police departments, oh. the Las Vegas City Police and the County Sheriff. And then they merged to form Las Vegas Metro. So I was going to do the history of Metro, which would have been like 25 years worth mm-hmm. at that point. The undersheriff said, but you've got to go back to 1905. <laughs> and he must have seen the look on a one-man operation, you know. And I, I, he must have seen the look on my face. He said, but not to worry. He says, we did an anniversary yearbook for internal use only. It was only for Metro employees. It was never it was on the public market. He said, we'll give you all our stuff, all our files, all the history from the first sheriff, the first chief of police and all the way up and all the photos and everything. And uh, he said, if you're willing to do that, I'll suggest to the sheriff, we approve working with you and you'll be the, you know, do our history. So uh, I said, go for it. And uh, by the time I drove home, he was on the line and he said, I just talked to Sheriff Keller and, uh, to go, he said, when do you want to start? So that was, if I may show you my, uh, this in fact was the first uh, book, Policing Las Vegas, and it's the okay. history of enforcement uh, in Las Vegas and Southern Nevada. Right. So that, that, that was my start. And so that one goes I, back all the way to 1905. It starts in 1905 and it ended, the book actually, by the time I finished it, it came out as a centennial book to the, in 2005, that's when it was released. Oh, so cool. it's a hundred-year history of uh, policing in Las Vegas. And through that, uh, I, I knew that if you're going to write a Sin City book, you had to have something in there about the mob, about organized crime. Mm-hmm. And I asked, I was working with a, one of the intelligence bureau detectives, and I said, I, I got to put something in here about the mob. I said, who should I write about or what should I write about? And he says, Tony Spilatro. I said, no. I said, who's Tony Spilatro? He said, did you ever see the movie Casino? I said, I did. Mm-hmm. He said, well, Joe Pesci's character is based on Tony Spilatro, and Robert De Niro plays a guy based on Frank Lefty Rosenthal. I saw I said, I thought that was just Hollywood. No, no, he said, that movie, is, in fact, he says, is amazingly accurate for huh. what was going on in Vegas at the time. So I, I did my research, and I, I put a section in the police history book about Spilatro, his era. And I became so intrigued with it I, when I, after I got the, uh, the history book published. I said, I wonder if anybody's written about Tony. And I found out that he'd been mentioned in a lot of books, but there'd never been a book basically about him. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, well, one former FBI agent had written about Tony. But I decided I, there was enough there for me to start and write about the Spilatro era in Vegas. So that resulted in the battle for Las Vegas, the law versus the mob. And uh, that was the one you said popped up on Amazon. And if I may get a little 
shameless. Let's see here. <laughs> there Battle it is. for law versus mob. So, um, and, and then it was like a domino effect. Uh, what I did was I got a hold of a former, one of the former FBI agents who was since retired, but he was a case agent for the Spalatro street crimes. Uh, Spalatro and his gang for the um, robberies and burglaries. And although robbery and burglary and that type of thing is local, it's a state offense under the RICO Act, the Federal RICO Act, mm -hmm. if they could prove that there was an organized criminal enterprise, the feds could charge as well. So that's why the FBI was involved in investigating street crimes oh, um, okay. under, under RICO. So eventually, after a little feeling out process, the uh, former agent decided he would talk to me and provide information, and he referred me to another retired agent. And that one referred me to another one, and they referred me to a couple of retired. Uh, well, they didn't really have to refer me. I'd made contacts with Metro when I did the history book, so I was able to get a hold of some of the retired detectives from Metro. Mm -hmm. And these when I had eight or ten sources. And the lawman, because Casino told the story primarily from the mobster side of things, they were anxious to sell, tell the police side of it. Okay. So, they were more than willing, and you know, like I say, once they found out they could trust me, and I wasn't going to sabotage them or, or write things that weren't true or anything like that. Um, everything went well, and then through that, I said, when I was just about done with the manuscript, I said, you know, I said the one thing that the Spilatro's crew was called the Hole in the Wall Gang, and I said, I wish I had a mobster to talk to because mm -hmm. I'd like to get that perspective as well, right. a, a real map. So the uh, the FBI agent I initially was dealing with, he had been the handler for Tony Spilato's street lieutenant, a guy named Frank Collada, okay. who had rolled become a government witness. And he still maintained contact with Frank. Huh. So he hooked me up with Frank. I did a very brief phone interview with him and uh, put a couple of comments in the manuscript. And then a few months later, I'm thinking, you know, this Frank's got a hell of a story. I wonder if he'd be willing to share it. And I didn't know how to get a hold of him. He had a new identity and all that kind of thing. And I couldn't have his phone number or witness protection deal. I see. But I got a hold of the FBI agent. And I, I said, next time you're talking to Frank, would you see if he's ever considered writing a new book? And the agent says, God, he said, I'm glad you mentioned that. He said, Frank called me a couple of months ago and wanted me to ask you if you'd be interested in writing his bio. <laughs> so, yeah, so, uh, so that got me in it was Frank Collada. Now, Frank and I have co-authored uh, three books. Wow. So, yeah, it's been uh, it's, it's been quite an episode. And, and that resulted in me getting inquiries from more, uh, I hate to use the word retired, but former mobsters who uh, who wanted their stories told. So I've written, you know, I've, I've had my fair share of work, and it all came about as a result of me wanting to switch careers and get out of writing when I went to that conference and, and talked to the lady that suggested I make a switch to uh, to nonfiction. So just the way <laughs> things work. Thank yeah, God. Right. Yeah, all at that one moment. Thank God you you happened to mention it to her, and you know she was she had the right info for you. That's crazy. Yes. And it just it's so cool how it just led you. All this stuff kind of snowballed, and you know one thing led to another to another book, and now you've sort of gotten this reputation as you know writing, 
you've hooked up with all these mobsters to write their stories. That's that's crazy. So what is it? What's it like? You know, kind of meeting with you know whether it's the former agents or mobsters, like meeting with them and and kind of hearing their stories. How do they? How do they kind of you know tell this stuff? Well, the 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 law people I had. You know, I, I spoke their language basically, so we 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 could get along quite well. Mm-hmm. Mobsters, a little different story there. They was always I considered them. No, I was not an organized crime investigator. I was white collar crime, mm-hmm. but I, I still investigated criminals, um, and I, I didn't have a whole lot of use. You know, organized crime guys were my enemies. I mean, that's what I felt about them. And uh, the first time I uh, after. The agent told me that Frank was interested in me doing his bio. He says, okay, he says, we're going to meet. He says, now, of course, security was primary concern. Uh He says, what we'll do, he says, is I'll tell you when Frank's going to come to town. Today, I'll give you a day. Mm -hmm. He said, I won't tell you where or time. He said, you'll have to wait for that. I said, okay. So he calls me and gives me a heads up. He said, Frank will be in town on such and such a date. I'll call you at 8 o'clock that morning and tell you where to be and what time to be there. <laughs> so, okay. so, sure enough, 8 o'clock that morning, the uh, phone rings. It's this agent. He says, uh, okay, so here's the hotel. You meet. He said, you'll be in the lobby, and I'll see you there, and I'll take you up to Frank's room. And he said, be there in two hours. So said, okay. Supposedly that would not give me time to set up a hit on Frank, you know, if I was, uh, if, if I had that in mind. Yeah. So um, I, I did, I went in the lobby and uh, the agent got and I had my briefcase with me. So we go up to Frank's room, stop outside. They got to search my briefcase, pat me down. <laughs> it was really a weird, surreal experience. Yeah. And I'm thinking I was excited when the agent told me, you know, that he was going to set up this meeting. And then I got thinking, Frank, from what I knew about him, from my research on him, he was not, he didn't have much of a formal education, but he obviously to survive in that kind of business for as long as he had, he had to be pretty sharp, mm-hmm. you know, astute and evaluating, evaluating people. And I'm thinking, is he going to know, is he going to tell by my body language what I think of him? You know, is he going to read me? Mm-hmm. So I... I was a little nervous about that, but anyway, uh, the agent introduced us and he left. And geez, uh, I ended up talking with Frank for over two hours. He, he had brought with him. Uh, he, he had typed. Had a, somebody type up his memoir, if you will. It was not written in book format or manuscript. It was just thoughts. Okay. So it was. It wasn't anything that you could put in itself in that in that form you couldn't use it for a book but it, it gave you some of the insights and he said here take this with you you know and so anyway ended up making a deal we discussed the finances uh, how we would do it and we shook hands that was it i took my stuff and briefcase and away i went so i'm driving home and i'm thinking to myself i said you know it's not, here's this guy he's a career thief and killer and i just made a deal with him on a handshake you know how 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 stupid am i you know but (laughs) anyway it was what it was so i went home and i started reading that stuff and uh, god it was uh i was hooked i mean it was i was interested anyway and then hearing his even though the uh 
the grammar, you know, incomplete thoughts and all that, but still. And uh, we had some initial problems because I couldn't know his new identity. I couldn't know how to get a hold of him. Everything had to go through the FBI agent or former FBI. And it, it got to be very awkward, to say the least. And I don't take shorthand or anything, so I, I get word the agent had Frank call me. He called, but disable his caller ID, so I, I, I wouldn't know what uh, what number he was calling from. And I'd be trying to make notes, you know, longhand, the best I could. Mm-hmm. And, and Frank always talked, uh, you know, the old thing, I was a godfather, nothing personal, strictly business. Well, Frank always talked monotone, and he never would uh, change voice inflection when something important was being said. <laughs> So we'd be, he'd be talking along, and I'd always be a few sentences behind him trying to catch up with my writing. Right. All of a sudden, it would dawn on me that he says, uh, you know, we had to break a guy's legs here one night because he was holding back money, you know, street tax. And I'd say, wait a minute, Frank, didn't you, did you just say, <laughs> well, yeah. I said, well, I need more information on that. That's what readers love. They, they want to hear about how you guys collected your money and what you did. Oh, he said, well, we did it all the time, so it's no big deal. I said, it's a big deal to the readers. That's who, that's who this is for. Yeah. You know it. And anyway, things weren't working. I finally told him one day, I said, Frank, I said, this is so awkward. This book's never going to be done. The manuscript will never be finished. I said, we'll be long gone. That thing will never be done. I said, we need easier communication. And I said, I'm so far behind now. I got so many questions. You know, we we really need to get together somehow. I'll tell you what, he says, I'll come to Vegas, but we need, you know, we'll, we'll get you caught up we'll go over everything and, and see where we stand. And he says, but uh, we got to do something private. I don't want to meet in my hotel, and I don't want to meet in a restaurant or somewhere where people can overhear us. Mm-hmm. I said, so I said, I'll tell you what, I said, when you get in town, let me know, and I'll pick you up wherever you are, and I'll bring you to my place. So I hung up the phone. I told my wife, of course, she knew about Frank from the first book, you know, because he was one of the bad guys in there, and we discussed that. I said, guess who's coming to dinner? He says, I said, Frank Collada, not in my house. He's not. I said, baby. So I said, well, I can't call him and tell him he's not welcome. You know? So right. uh, the, the day he showed up, he came in one door, her and the dog went out the other, so they never used each other. And uh, uh, But now they're great buddies. Frank's a uh, but it was a rough, rocky start. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Frank ended up giving me his contact information and uh, phone number, and that, that smoothed things out. I mean, it was a tremendous help to be able to to communicate on a timely basis without having to wait and go through a third party. So right. uh, that worked well. And before I forget, one final book cover to show you here. Yes. This is the latest one, The Rise and Fall of a Casino, and the casino is in quotes because in the movie, Mobster, Through a Hitman's Eyes, and it's Frank's um, personal dealings with Tony Spilatro and his recollections of Tony, and gets into the uh, killings that Tony actually committed that Frank is aware of, Mm -hmm. uh, murders Tony was suspected of, but Frank says he didn't commit. And we outline, uh, detail each one and, and why Frank uh, either knows Tony did it or suspects he didn't do it, that it was somebody else's killing, or that maybe Tony ordered the killing but didn't carry it out personally. And this, um, the rights to this book, this last book, were 
purchased by a, a British production company, a documentary company, for a possible multi-episode, the ultimate Tony Spilatro era book or a, a, a series, right? Uh, documentary. So anyway, the uh, they've I just found out they've completed their scripts for the episodes. And have submitted them to an interesting, interested TV network. So we're waiting now to see if they actually buy it or not. So keep your fingers crossed. Oh, awesome! That's exciting. Very cool. <laughs> it certainly is. Yeah. You know, after 25 years, I finally got a hit. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is just incredible. It must have been like. I mean, you kind of had maybe you had experience with this a little bit, but it just seems so like kind of surreal, almost like you're living in a movie, going through this. You know, he's in witness protection and, and meeting him, meeting Frank like this and everything. Um, so what, like, because you guys were, you know, you're sort of on opposite sides where you worked for law enforcement and he was, you know, working for the mob and organized crime. How were you able to build that relationship and, you know, just kind of walk into that hotel room and get him to trust you and, and do that handshake deal? Well, I, I think he got a good report from the FBI agent who he was friends with, mm-hmm. you know, that I had treated, treated all the law enforcement people well. I I made sure I ran everything by them. I, they give me information. I write up a, a chapter or an incident, then I'd email it to them and say, if I got this right, is this the way it came down? Do you want to change anything? And so uh, we developed mutual respect, the law enforcement people uh, and me. And uh, that was conveyed apparently to Frank by the FBI guy. You know, this this guy can can be trusted. Mm-hmm. So uh, that Frank, but but even even at that, Frank was still pretty aware. I mean, Frank came from a life uh, prior to to his forced retirement, where everybody was out to get you. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody everybody would, would uh, steal from you. Your best friend might take you for that final walk and put one in your head. Uh, you know. I, so Frank was not a particularly trusting soul, and it took a while, I think, for us to fully bond. I mean, it was, you know, kind of a feeling out thing. And I, I know Frank, or I'm sure Frank, was uh, wanted personal uh, history with me. You know, he, what the FBI told him was one thing, but he wanted to see personally firsthand mm-hmm. uh, how I handled myself and how I handled him. So it... Um, it was good. Now, now we're we're buddies. I mean, we we talk uh, usually a couple of times a week, and uh, this may sound a little odd, but Frank told me he always makes me laugh. He always has me stitches. We talk about most anything with me. He talk about politics, about sports, weather, you know, whatever it is, we talk about it. And um, he told me one day he called me Griffey. And, uh, he said he said something and it just had had me roaring and you know it, was, it struck me so funny. He said, "Telling you, Griffey, he says you'd like me even when I was killing people. You'd like me." <laughs> <laughs> this is okay. Oh, and, man. Uh, did you ever hear? Did you ever see the movie Goodfellas? Yes. About Henry Hill. Oh yeah. Well, this this was really fun. I got to meet Henry Hill. I had never wrote a book with him, but Henry's girlfriend at the time contacted me because he was coming to Vegas and wanted to do a couple of events. 
you know, if I would appear with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, she had lined up a couple of the restaurants for him to get. And, of course, he was a New York guy, and I, I was involved with mostly the Chicago uh, crime family, or mm-hmm. the outfit, as they call it. So I, I agreed, and, and we met, and uh, did a couple of events, and we became kind of a, a team. We, we would go here and there. And then I introduced Henry to Frank, and then another guy wrote a book about called Surviving the Mob, and he was another New York guy. He had been with the Gambino family. His name was Andrew DiDonato. So I got Andrew involved. Now, none of these guys had ever met each other before. Huh. And if you wanted, you know, if you were into this kind of stuff, the, the mob life and all that, to sit around with those three. And then they brought in a couple of more guys, so... Sometimes there were five. I was I would be in a room with five or six former mobsters, and I think a couple of them might have been current. But anyway, they said, <laughs> um, "And listen to these guys talk." I mean, it was absolutely, you know, uh, what what a odd, again, surreal uh, experience to listen to these guys talking about hits and about capers and about the with Henry and the Lufthansa heist and all this. And, uh, it was really, really something. So, uh, you know, even if I had never written a book, to, just to uh, be able to get this firsthand exposure and listen to these guys at these meetings, uh, uh, sit-downs, as they used to call them, uh, was, was, was really something. It was an experience, uh, you know, that I, I'm glad I had. If I had never sold a book, it would be okay. It was uh, I enjoyed it that much. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely imagine that would be a very memorable uh, sit-down experience there. Um, yes. So is there, do, I mean, with all these guys telling all their stories and everything, do they have any concerns with like, with, you know, keeping things secret or everything or anything like that? Because they seem very open to tell everything. Is that the case? Yes. Uh, now, let me, let me qualify that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frank, for example, I asked him when we, first got started with this thing because I know based on how the FBI agent handled things, the former agent, that security was was a concern. And I asked Frank, I said, how worried are you about still being on the hit list? He said, not so much now. I said, so many years have gone by. He said, virtually everybody that I dealt with is either dead or in prison. He said, but what I'm, he said, uh, did you ever watch uh, one of these old, you know, Westerns about the aging gunfighter and there's some young up-and-comer wants to get a reputation. So he said, let me knock off the old gunfighter, you know, and right. put that notch in my belt. He said, that's what I'm more concerned about. Some, somebody that uh, just wants to build a reputation say, I'm the guy that got Colada. And uh, so Frank says, that would be my more concern. That's why I said I don't want people to know my address or that, you know, that type of thing. So he was conscientious in that regard. Um, Andrew was similar to that, Andrew DiDonato. Uh, Henry was a whole different ballgame. Henry didn't seem to give a damn, you know, who knew where he was. It, it just, uh, and in fact, we started doing uh, Las Vegas at the time. The Clark County Library had February, I believe, was Mob Month. And each night of the month, each Tuesday night of the month, they would have something to do with organized crime. So I was helping them set up their programs. 
And my job was to round up a bunch of these former mobsters and cops and have them do a panel. And I would invite Henry, and Henry could fill a room, uh, no matter what you thought of him. Mm-hmm. If his name's out there in the, in the advertisement, you could count on standing room only. Yep. So uh, the trouble was Henry liked his booze. And he apparently, back in the day, had been in drugs pretty heavy. As far as I know, when I knew him, uh, he, he was off the drugs pretty much, but he was alcohol. Mm-hmm. And Frank, or excuse me, Henry was one of these guys that can blow uh, a breathalyzer at double the legal limit, but function normally. I mean, he just had, you know, he had, had so much that he could operate, uh, and you would think he hadn't had a drink. But wow. he, he could be at twice twice the legal, the legal limit. But anyway, he would tie it on these packages, and he, I never knew if he was going to show up for the event, and if he did come, what kind of shape he'd be in. Because right. if he'd come in the afternoon, boozing it up someplace, you know, it, it, was he going to come in with a hangover, and what would I have to deal with? So I remember one night we had the the, the hand of, I think it was a three hundred and some seat theater at the, at the library. And then they had a mini theater with another 150 people. And they had that set up because they had so many people wanting to get in. And um, I'm checking my watch and checking my watch. Everybody's there but Henry. Finally, about five minutes before we're supposed to start, Henry comes in. And I could tell by looking at him, I said, he looks like he's recovering from a little afternoon session, you know, with the bottle. And... Uh, so each of, each of the panelists, we had, I think there were six or seven altogether, law enforcement and, and former mobsters, and had, had a microphone in front of them, uh, you know, turned on. And I couldn't just concentrate on Henry. I wanted to keep him in the game. I didn't want him to go to sleep on me. Mm-hmm. I, I had, you know, I asked questions of other people as well. So I'm watching out of the corner of my eye, and I see... Every so often when somebody else is talking, his head starts to dip down. And then he'd catch himself up, straighten back up. And then his head would dip down. Then I'd try to bring him into the conversation to wake, you know, to, to get him uh, activated again. And one time he went and he didn't catch himself. And his forehead hit the open mic and it sounded like a gunshot. Oh, jeez. You want to see screaming and people diving under their chairs. They thought that there was a mob hit in progress. Oh, my gosh. And that, of course, woke Henry up. And he, he, he snapped out of the good and he says, no, no, no. I said, don't worry. He said, don't worry. I was just trying to get your attention. So we tried to make it sound like he did that intentionally. Right. And then, uh, then everybody started laughing and all that. And a few minutes later, some uh, lady get up apparently to go to the ladies room and Henry sees her walking toward the exit. He says, you young lady, he said, where are you going? And of course she's kind of startled. And she says, well, I, 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 I got to go to the ladies' room. She, right. she was scared. Henry says, you can't leave. You know too much. <laughs> 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 then everybody broke out laughing again. But there was a lot of good times. But I, I, Henry had me so nervous about whether or be present at these things that I eventually stopped being the scheduler for him. I, I told the, uh, the lady at the library, I said, you've got all Henry's information. You you set it up. Right. You know, I don't want fingers pointing at me if he doesn't show up or if he's not, you know, not in very good shape. So uh, uh, there they, they were they were some fun times, these uh, 
these meetings and uh, it, it, it was really an educational experience. Yeah, that is incredible that you've gotten to to do this and experience all this and it just everything led to this. That's that's great. So was were there any uh, uh, had Henry ever not showed up for something or was did he usually uh, was he able to make it in some condition? He always made it in some condition. I got to give him that. He always uh, he was always there and uh, always a hit. And and even when he was uh, uh, in his cups uh, a little bit, nobody ever minded. Uh, you know, people people just giggle and tee hee and applaud, and they, he just had that way about him. And, and like they say, he was. Uh, I, I got to tell you one little story. Uh, we got invited, Henry and I, and a fellow by the name of Vito Colucci, retired, or he's a private investigator. Mm-hmm. And we got invited on a local Vegas radio show. So we went, and Henry shows up pretty well oiled. And uh, the uh, they didn't have any kind of a kill or delay switch there. And it was right when they had the tsunami in Japan there a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And people died. So the, uh, the, the co-host of the show, and one of them says to us, he said, Beto, he says, uh, before we start, you know, the, the subject matter. He said, what, uh, uh, you have any thoughts about the tsunami that hit Japan? So uh, Peter saw, you know, terrible thing and so on and so forth. He said, I just hope uh, there's no additional loss of life. Then he asked me, and I, I said basically the same thing. Then he turns to Henry. And Henry said, what do you have to say about the tsunami in Japan? Henry says, I won't use the full word, but uh, the F word. F them, F and Japs. My uncle was in World War II, and they shot him down. They murdered my uncle. So I'm thinking, oh, my God. Uh, I I see the look on the host face. And then so we got all through the program. We're ready to go. And then uh, the host comes back for round two, and he says, before I let you go, he says, uh, do you have a favorite charity or something that people ought to send money to for the tsunami victims. And Vito says, International Red Cross. And I said something else. And he said, how about you, Henry? He said, I told you I was left time after death. <laughs> right. I said, I couldn't believe they went back and opened the door a second time. Right. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's good. No filter. Wow. He was a trip. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I love how your your perspective is you're just kind of sitting there watching the show on this, you know, and enjoying him and, and whatever he has to say, you know? Yes. Yes. <laughs> bring I had a ring side seat, man. <laughs> oh God, that's that's great. That's fun. Um so I I was curious about uh Frank. So he was in maybe this might be, you know, a, a huge question, I guess, that has a lot, and it's probably uh, you know, answered in your books, but Frank was in uh, witness protection, correct? Correct. Okay, so how did that? How did he get into witness protection? Okay, what happened was he he had been arrested locally in Vegas mm-hmm. for possession of stolen property, property taken in a burglary. Now Frank was already a two-time loser, so under the three strikes you're out thing, he could have been facing life. Oh, okay. in prison. I see. So, but he was prepared to do that. 
you know, he was a stand-up guy. You never ran on your friends, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the, the law wanted Tony Spilatro real bad. He was the ultimate goal. Like like in uh, New York, they, they wanted uh, John Gotti real bad. They made a deal with Sammy the Bold Bravano, you know, and he uh, forgave him for 19 murders or something if, if he would flip and roll on, uh, on Gotti. So they wanted Frank to do that. They wanted Frank to roll on Tony. And Frank's his past. He was prepared to do life in prison rather than give up Tony because they were boys, friends since boyhood. Mm-hmm. So one day, while Frank's he had been convicted, he's, he's in jail waiting for sentencing, and the FBI agent, an FBI agent, calls from the Vegas field office. He was a supervisor, and he says uh, he calls Frank's lawyer. He says, "I need to talk to your client." He said, "Meet me at the jail." Clark County Detention Center, you know, such and such a time. So they bring Frank out of a cell into a conference room, and the Frank's lawyer is there, and the FBI agent says, okay, he said, I just want to tell you, FBI policy is that if we know someone's life is in danger, we have to tell them regardless of our feelings toward that person. Frank, he says, I just wanted to tell you, we know that uh, the Chicago outfit has approved a contract on your life. You're going to be killed. Thank you. Have a nice weekend. And he leaves. So Frank's, you know, doesn't know what to think. And the lawyer says, don't worry about that. He says, you know, the law can lie to you. They're allowed to lie. So he said, they're making this up so they can, you know, get you to to roll on Tony. Right. So Frank spends the weekend in his cell thinking, thinking about this FBI visit. The next morning or Monday morning, he's on the phone to the FBI without his lawyer being involved. And he wants the agent to come to the jail. Mm-hmm. So the agent shows up, they have this meeting, and, uh, you know, Frank still feels he's probably it's set up. It's probably BS, you know, they're just trying to get him to talk. But he says, he wants to know how he can believe this guy. And the agent says, well, I'll tell you what. He says, we got this off a wiretap. I'll play the recording for you. Ooh. So... There the recording is, and Tony Spilatro and one of the outfit bosses, a guy named Joey, they call him Joey the Clown, Joey the Clown Lombardo, he was Spilatro's boss, are in a phone conversation, and uh, Lombardo says to Tony, he says, yeah, I see what you mean. He says, wash your dirty laundry. That's mob talk for kill the guy. Mm-hmm. Well, Frank knows now that Tony threw him under the bus Tony was blaming all the problems in Las Vegas on Frank, that he couldn't control Frank, and that Frank was running running amok. And uh, so Lombardo gave Tony permission to have to kill Frank or have him killed. So when Frank heard that, he decided, you know, what do I owe Tony at this point? Yeah. If Tony wants me dead, he's going to kill me or have me killed. And uh, so after some negotiations, he, he agreed to... Uh, be a cooperating witness. No, he never wore a wire. He just said, I will I will tell you what I know from my personal experience mm-hmm. about Tony and other gang members. But I won't wear a wire. I'm not... Uh, Frank had his thing that an informant is someone who wears a wire usually or just is trying to make a deal to keep out of jail and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, cooperating witness is somebody who's the mob has decided is expendable 
and they're going to kill them. And there's not a whole other choice. You can either just walk out to where they're going to kill you, dig your own grave, and let them put one in your head, or you can, you know, go to a plan B. Frank took plan B, which was uh, testifying and going into witness protection. So that's how he ended up in witness protection. Wow. So what what ended up happening to Tony? Tony was eventually murdered by the mob in 1986, and they they. Uh, in, in the casino, they show him being beaten to death in a cornfield. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is not the way it happened. He was beaten to death, he and his brother, in the basement of a house in Chicago, in a Chicago suburb. Mm-hmm. And uh, ironically, one of his killers, one of the guys that killed Tony and his brother, was a guy Frank had wanted to kill. And... Frank and I went to Tony, had to get permission to whack somebody. So Frank had gone to Tony, who was his immediate supervisor, uh-huh. and wanted permission to kill this guy. His name was Louis the Mooch Eboli, Eboli. And Tony wouldn't let him kill him. He said, no, he said, we don't open that can of worms, you know, bring on too much heat, so um, you can't whack him. you got to let him go. And it turned out he was one of the guys, Frank says, I'm wondering if Tony was being beaten to death if he thought I should have let Frank kill this guy. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, but there, there were 11 or 12 up in there. It wouldn't have made any difference. Tony was a goner. But right. um, yeah, he was a guy that uh, Tony had saved his life by not letting Frank kill him. And then uh, he, ended up, he ended up doing Tony. So, um, yeah, but uh, then, they, then they were taken to a cornfield and buried. But the murders didn't oh. take place field okay. they were transported to a cornfield right man this stuff is crazy like for me it, it this is like i've just seen you know movies like casino and and everything like that it just this seems so fiction to me because it just seems like it was made in hollywood but it's just crazy that this is all real and documented and it, it this was going on it's insanity well, and Frank, you you have seen him, I know, if you've seen Casino, because Frank, and when uh, Pelleggi, Nick Pelleggi, the screenwriter, and Marty Scorsese decided to do the movie Casino, they needed a technical consultant. Pelleggi reached out to his sources in law enforcement and was able to get a hold of Frank and offered Frank a role as technical consultant in the movie. So Frank had, was on a director's chair right next to Marty Scorsese during the entire movie. Wow. And he advised them and told them how this came down and that came down. And uh, about so probably three-quarters of the way through Casino, the, several of the, the godfathers in the Midwest are getting busted and they're getting arrested and they, they appear in court. And during a recess, they, they go into a uh, conference room and... They're all got oxygen tanks and nurses, and they're all sickly, you know, supposedly. And once they get in this conference room and the uh, the nurses leave, they decide who's a potential threat to them that maybe should uh, disappear mm-hmm. or, or not be able to testify. So they end up deciding uh, five or six people need to be hit. So... Uh, when they're when they're doing the filming, they had an actor playing the hitman, and Frank was there in that chair, the director's chair next to Scorsese, and he said, "That's not the way a hitman do a hit like that." He says, "You're you're doing it all wrong." So Scorsese says, "Well, why don't you do it?" So 
Frank, Frank is the hitman. He appears personally in all the scenes. There's killings right after this courtroom thing. And one, uh, one of them is based on a, a hit Frank did in real life. Uh, in the movie, they, they say it takes place in Costa Rica, but it was, took place in Las Vegas. And it was the murder of a guy named Jerry Listener, who was a government witness. And, uh, and Frank killed him. But, but uh, in the movie, they fictionalize it. Of course, they put it in Costa Rica, and they show Frank doing the... Yeah, it's uh, if you ever watch the movie and you see that scene, you hear gunshots. This guy comes stumbling out of the door to his house and kind of collapses on the on the sidewalk. And Frank comes up to him and he takes his gun. He's got his gun in his hand. He says, "Here you go, jag off." And he puts one in the guy's head. So that was uh, that, that was based on that. And uh, Nick Pelleggi says that uh, you know he's done a lot of organized crime stuff and crime between plays and movies. Just the first time he's ever had or a real life uh, mobster reenact an actual killing that yeah. he had done on, on the screen. So uh, uh, Pledgy was quite pleased with that whole thing. <laughs> oh my gosh. That must <laughs> be so surreal even for like, you know, for Frank or anybody like that to, to uh, kind of see all these things that you've done, you know, replayed on, on screen and in Hollywood movies and, and everything like that. It must be just crazy to see. Yeah. And, and Frank's done a whole bunch of documentaries too. He was, uh, you know, because of his knowledge and his role as a, the, the street lieutenant there for Tony. Um, anybody who's doing a documentary about Vegas and the mob or Spilatro, they want to talk to Frank. He's, and, and of course now he's one of the last survivors to that whole, uh, that whole, uh, era yeah so uh he's he's uh, got a lot of gotten a lot of exposure uh in you know on, on the screen and primarily documentaries and of course his uh his role in the movie mm -hmm. just, you know yeah and there's I such think. a there's such a fascination it seems just like uh, almost like everybody it seems has such a fascination with you know that era of organized crime and everything it's just so interesting and fascinating to see like, I don't know, there's just almost an endless supply of, of books and info and documentaries and movies and everything. It It's just so fun to watch. And everyone's just so, everyone has such a fascination with it, it seems like. And I, I don't know why that is. Do you have, do you have any, you know, any maybe theories or something or anything like that? Why this stuff is just so interesting and fun to learn about, even though it's, it's kind of, it's crazy. It's illegal stuff, you know, but it's it's interesting. Well, I have a theory. As a matter of fact, I just uh, reviewed uh, a manuscript for for a writer, and he's uh, a manuscript called Underworld, mm -hmm. and he wants to take a look at it. And he takes a real uh, uh, funny approach, very humorous. And his uh, he starts out saying a few. Are you tired of you know working in the office? Some schmuck comes up to you when you're at the copy machine and tells you it's his turn and get out of the way and uh, tells you what to do. And you think, man, I'd love to smack him around this guy. Uh, anyway, so he said, if you're if you're frustrated with that kind of thing, but you don't really have the nerve to do anything about it, he says maybe you should have become a mobster. He said because mobsters don't don't take anything from anybody. He said so. Uh, you know, I, I tend to somewhat agree with that, that, that a lot of people look at the fascination with the mobsters 
they don't take crap from anybody and they they dictate the terms and i i think some of us maybe think geez i wish you know i had the nerve or whatever to to uh to, to do what some of these guys do. And, and then, of course, you always got the, you know, the big wads of money and the women and the cars and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But and I found that uh, in addition to the uh, uh, America Mafia fans, we, there's uh, people in Australia, the Aussies, the Canadians, the British. Uh, they're great consumers of mob stuff. And uh, uh, we sell a lot of books to uh to those audiences, and it, it's it's really amazing. But I, I think some of it's just that fascination of what it would be like to be able to do what they do. Yeah, and, uh, you know, not take any guff. Mm-hmm. Totally, be the king of it. I always think, you know, it's probably just me because I'm a little like a little weird about this stuff. But I, you know, I watch these and I'm like, okay, great. You know, you've you've done all this, and you you know, you have all the money and. You have women and power and everything, but it's like, can you really just relax and enjoy it ever? Because it seems like I, I would be constantly worried about, you know, someone taking a hit on me and, and killing me. I, would, I could never just relax and actually enjoy it. So I'm like, well, is it worth it then, you know? But that's, I have such, I probably have a very different mindset. I, I don't think I'm, I'm built for organized crime, probably. <laughs> well, most, most of us aren't in reality. I think, yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's very rare to find a real success story in the sense of a mobster actually retiring and spending their money that the ill-gotten gains and really enjoying themselves, because generally they end up either getting whacked or end up in prison. You know, they don't get they don't end up uh, leading that life of leisure and uh, comfort as a as a retired uh, as a retired mob guy. Mm-hmm. So I. Uh, I, I think that's true. It's very rare to find a success story like that where, where it comes out and and the positive end of it. Yes, yeah, I think I think that you're you're very very right. But I guess they're probably not thinking about that at the time. Um, okay, so I just this is so cool. I love hearing all these stories. But I'm curious. I don't even really know or or you know because there was this kind of this whole era that's been put into movies like Casino and everything like that of you know the mob. But how is it kind of Evolved. Like, what is there? What are the remnants of it, and what is it like today that you know of? Okay, well, I'm going to. Uh, it's obviously a lot different than back of the Capone days and so forth. You know, the, right. and this steel, this, this uh, witness protection business, and all that. And you get a lot of people you know, that will turn on, or if you want to use the word rat, rat out their uh, their associates and inform on them not at the point of a gun, not at the point where they're on the hit list themselves, but just because they don't want to go to jail or don't want to go to jail for too long. Hmm. Uh, and, and they will endear themselves to the to the police. It's uh, sometimes paid informants, so they'll uh, wear wires or what have you. Uh, so that's that's all, uh, it's not new, but it's, it's the trend. Uh, it's no longer this omerita death before dishonor type stuff. Hmm. Um and, and witness protection has, has had a lot to do with that, where people can go uh, and survive, you know, uh, make their move and, and survive it. Um, the, the question is, can they live with themselves? You know what I mean? If they want to go out as a stand-up guy, that type of thing, do they, do they, do they make that kind of move? So I, I can understand it 
with, with the guys who are, are going to be killed themselves. I, like I say, there's, there's no good options there. You're, you're kind of out of it. Guys who just don't want to do the, the time. You know, as you're all saying, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. Mm-hmm. Well, it's true. And, and uh, a lot of a lot of them are going that way. So, so the security, job security is as great as it may have been years ago. Okay. And that has hurt the map now. And let me address Las Vegas a little bit. Uh, where the movie Casino ends is, is when these, uh, when the mob had hidden ownership and control of a lot of the casinos. And uh, after the mob was driven out of that and they become, became corporations and uh, the mobsters now make their money, casino money as stockholders, legitimate huh. stockholders in the casino. So they, they still can maybe make money on the casinos, but it's illegal. It's, it's done that way. Yeah. But and a lot of people ask me, well, what, what happened to the mob then? Did they just disappear? No, there's too much money in Las Vegas to, you know, for that, not to figure some way to get some of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I found that the adult entertainment industry was where a lot of them went to. These men's clubs and these uh, outcall services, you know, the so-called exotic dancers, which... They're not really dancers, but, uh, you know, <laughs> yes. and, and mob money. In fact, I'm working on a project now called Wrong Numbers. And it's it's a true story of how a guy who's uh, an expert on computers and phone systems hacked into the uh, phone system in Vegas and calls that were intended to go to the mob-controlled escort services, basically it was legal prostitution, you know, prostitution posing as dancers or, uh, you know, companionship thing, mm-hmm. um, were able to divert the calls to a non-mob-controlled escort operation. Oh. So the monsters, all of a sudden, their calls for these escort services are disappearing. They're, they're you know, they were used to getting a hundred a week, all of a sudden they're getting ten. Yeah, and uh, they can't understand. They can't understand what was going on, and it, it turns out it was uh, this hacker came up with this deal, and they started hijacking the phone calls. And you were talking some big money uh, for this. So the the New York mob sends a <laughs> sends out a guy named Vinny Aspirin's Conguisti, I hope I'm pronouncing that properly. And Benny, he got his name Aspirins because he took care of mob headaches. He was a uh, Trump. <laughs> and what he did, he carried, you know, he had access, of course, to a gun, but he used a drill. He would take a handheld cordless power drill and drill into a man's skull with the, uh, with the drill to induce him to talk. And that was how he uh, that was how he handled some of his business. Um, it's funny. I'm, I'm working on uh, I'm working on that project now. We, uh, the book is almost finished. It's called Wrong Numbers, and uh, the uh, co-author I'm working with is a guy named Glenn Meek, and he was an investigative reporter for years, TV reporter in Las Vegas, and he's got all these uh, uh, FBI the transcripts and wiretaps uh, recordings, and it's. Uh, it's really something. And one of them, uh, the one of one of the New York mobsters who has been sent to Vegas with Vinny, 
is calling back to New York to give them an update on what they're finding out about why all these, uh, why their business has dropped off so drastically. And uh, he, tell, he tells the guy he's talking to back in New York, he says, you're going to have to speak up. He said, Vinny's got a guy in the next room working him over. He said, so oh he said, I can hear the drill going now. <laughs> wow. Crazy. <laughs> Man. So that appears to be where a lot of the mob went in Vegas, at least after the, uh, after they got driven out of the casinos. Mm -hmm. So what is the, uh, you know, the, I'm sorry, what was it called? Wrong numbers or mixed numbers? Wrong, wrong numbers. Wrong numbers. When was that uh, story uh, taking place? What were what were the years for that? We would have been gone from the early nineties. Oh, okay. Up to thought, yeah. To, so it's within the past 15, 20 years. You know, okay. it runs. Uh, hopefully, and um, hopefully some of that is stopped now. Because I remember myself that uh, it was getting so bad. They had the street operators. The girls that would actually be on the streets, and they had become so aggressive. In some cases, they would approach a couple, you know, a tourist couple walking down the street and on the strip, and they would uh, physically grab onto the man and say, "You're coming with us," and tell the wife, "If you want to come and watch, you're welcome." You know, <laughs> wow. uh, yeah. And, but but then they had all these news racks, and they were loaded with this uh, stuff, this literature. And the phone come the phone book, yellow pages, ad after ad after ad about, uh, you know, if, if you want to do a little dancing tonight, call so-and-so and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. And again, because a lot of people don't realize that prostitution is illegal in Clark County. They figure all of Nevada has legalized prostitution, but they don't. Clark County is an illegal, uh, it's not allowed there. Mm -hmm. Not saying it doesn't happen, obviously it does, but they disguise it. Uh, to just just enough, like with this dancer business, to to get away uh, with being being able to operate. Right, lots of bucks. Man, Whew. so the um, the uh, the thing where they kind of do like you know Vinny Aspirin or whatever, where they kind of get they get like a middle name like that. Is that do you know how that kind of started or what the because that that just seems so yeah I don't know iconic and and kind of fun where you would get like a middle name like a a name like that is that still going on too? Oh yeah, most yeah. of these guys have uh, have, have monikers now. The uh, Andrew DiDonato, who I mentioned uh, with the Gambinos, he was good news. Uh, his boss is uh, the guy that came after Gotti. Uh, after Gotti got taken down, um, every time Andrew was Andrew was running some illegal gambling and some chop shops and. Uh, expert uh, master car thief and so on and uh but uh, he every time he would call his boss he'd say hey, we just uh, did this or that and i'm coming over with an envelope for you with uh, you know x number of thousand so they called him good news it seemed like every time he called him getting good news aspirins was because of the headache uh, you know eliminated headaches um another guy was nicknamed chooch and uh uh, because that supposedly means jackass. <laughs> they thought this guy was kind of a jackass, so they called him <laughs> the truth. Uh, but yeah, these guys pick up uh, pick up all these handles, and that's uh, still goes on. Right, that's great. I love that. That's that just seems like so. To me, that feels like it's like a kind of a movie trope, but I, it's 
I'm glad to hear that that is actually a, a real thing and still going on. Yeah, no, let me just tell you about Frank. Frank, uh, now this wasn't common for him, but I was interviewing him when I was doing one of my books. I was interviewing a former district attorney from Las Vegas, from Clark County, and we were talking about Frank. That was before I met Frank. That's when I was doing the the, uh, the book about the battle for Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, you mean far away Frank? I said, far away? What's that all about? Yeah, he says, I, I nicknamed him Far Away Frank. He said, every time we had a major crime, he said, Frank always had an alibi. He was far away from, from wherever the action was. <laughs> so, uh, so Frank, at least in this one guy's opinion, he was far away, Frank. Right, yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Danny, this is so fun talking to you. You have so many cool stories, and, and this is so cool that you were able to kind of, you know, get this whole thing going and build all these relationships. It's crazy, and, and all these books you've written. Um, so where can, you know, where can we get your books? Are they all on Amazon or, or I know you have a website Amazon, too. Amazon has them all. And I have a personal website. It's, uh, Dennis, the middle initial N is in Norman Griffin, G R I F F I N dot B I Z Dennis and Griffin dot biz. And, um, I've got some, uh, I have my book stuff there, but I also have some, uh, some videos uh, and some photos that, that people might enjoy, you know, if they're into the, the, the crime stuff. And one of the videos is of me interviewing Frank and his former FBI handler about a double homicide that took place in Lake Moore, Illinois, in 1981. And it had been unsolved until we wrote Frank's book, his biography, which uh, his biography was called Collada. Mm-hmm. That in that book, we told the story of this double homicide. We didn't identify the names of the two deceased people, but just that one of Frank's crew had done uh, done the hit, the killings. And as, as it worked out, it was a cold, I didn't realize it, they were cold cases in, in Illinois. And the lady who had been Back in 81, the babysitter for one of the victim's sons mm-hmm. saw the book, and she said, gee, that sounds very much like uh, Paul's, how Paul's father was killed. So they contacted our publisher, to, the son did, to try to get a hold of me, and we ended up making contact. And it turned out that because of uh, Frank's, for that book, that the end, they ended up clearing the case and identified the killer who had died. The killer died, uh-huh. but uh, they closed the case out of an exceptional, uh, exceptional case and uh, and cleared it up. So the the son was very pleased. Anyway, so I interview and then in that little video, it's a short, up to three minutes. But uh, uh, Frank talks about how this all came down. So anybody uh, is welcome to go to the site and and take a look at the photos and the videos. I might get a kick out of them. Oh my gosh, that is incredible. So just from his book and accounts, they were able to, you know, he had this knowledge, just him sharing it and someone reading it, they were able to finish and close a new, a case. Exactly. Crazy. Man. <laughs> it's awesome. There's so much. I feel like we could talk forever, Denny. You have so many stories. So what what's going on now? What are you, are you just, I mean, you have a new book coming out. You're almost done with that. Are you just going to keep writing and, and doing what you're doing? Yeah, I've got two or three projects going. Uh, the the book that came out last Tuesday 
the well, this past Tuesday was called a family business, and it's a story of about a guy in New York, an uh, associate. Uh, what it was '87 now. What a fabulous life he had in New York, and he was into a little bit of everything. He was a bouncer at the Copacabana, and he worked with Sinatra and uh, Sammy Davis and all these guys. And he became uh, running the illegal gambling operations for the mob in New York City, and uh, uh, kind of an enforcer and a fixer. You know, you had some issues you wanted to resolve. You come to name is Joe Silvestri, Joey, and you come to Joey and he'd have a sit down with the people and explain the facts of life to him and how, how uh, you know, what they had to do and couldn't do and so on. Uh-huh. Um, and he got in the restaurant business. He ended up uh, catering parties for Donald Trump. And I, it, it, it just, uh, you know, story after story about his life. So that just came out. Wrong Numbers is almost completed. Uh, hope to be able to send that to the publisher in the next uh, couple of weeks. Um, I also did uh, just putting the finishing touches on a book about Vinnie Curto. He was the former uh, super cruiserweight boxing champion. And his life story from he was a childhood sexual abuse victim through winning the world title and all the obstacles he overcame. And he was heavily involved with the mob. You know, the boxing has a sleazy side to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was supposed to take a dive at a fight in Madison Square Garden. And the same as Bull Gravano and his boys had a lot of money on this thing. And everything was all set, they thought, for Vinny to take a dive in a certain round. Well, Vinny said to hell with that, and he ended up winning the fight. It cost him a lot of money. So Vinny had to go on the land. They wanted to kill him. So he had to flee to Canada. Sinatra intervened and got him a, got him a hiding spot in Canada. And so anyway, that, that's, uh, that's what we're calling it survival. And that, that's near completion. And I'm just uh, just finished last Friday an anthology uh, about cold cases, and these are cases in which uh, people uh, were died as a result of homicide or suspicious deaths, and uh, we're calling it survivors, the forgotten victims of homicide and suspicious deaths, and tells what happens to the families after their loved one has been murdered or died suspiciously, and what uh, suspiciously what they go through. Yeah. So. Again, that one just went to the publisher last Friday. Wow. Uh, I got a lot of stuff in the oven. Yeah, for real. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, these these stories are so fun. I'm glad you're telling them and, and getting this info out here while you know we still have the sources around. So thank yes. you for doing that. It's great. Well, I'll I'll throw links to your, you know, to your stuff on Amazon and your website, of course, so people can click on that and check out all your books. But uh man, thanks for being on the show, Danny. It was awesome. Really appreciate it. You're welcome, Travis. It's been my pleasure. All right. Well, have a good rest of the day. Get back to your uh, one-finger typing, all right? I sure will. (laughs) Thank you. Yep. Hey, guys. Travis is here again. Um, So the podcast is over. It's done. So you can just leave right now. So don't worry about it. But I just had a couple things I wanted to mention and say to you guys. So first of all, thanks for listening to the episode or watching the episode. Super appreciate that. Um, if you want to connect with me or in, in the podcast, uh, we're on. We have a website. It's called curiosityness.com. Um, curiosityness is C U R I O S I T Y N E S S. Kind of weird, um, but that's what it is. Curiosityness.com. Uh, you can go there. We have an Instagram. Instagram.com/slash curiosityness podcast. 
So not just curiosityness for the username. Uh, I'm on Instagram as Trav DeRose, T-R-A-V-D-E-R-O-S-E, if you want to find just me. Um, oh, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash curiosityness. We're on YouTube. Uh, I think just go to YouTube and search curiosityness and we'll pop up. Uh, I don't think we have a URL for that one. Sorry. Oh, and we have a, I have an email address, Travis at curiosityness.com. So if you want to email me, you know, give me your thoughts on the show, suggestions, tips, uh, maybe like a suggestion for a new, for a guest who could come on, maybe yourself or somebody that you know who might be interested or, or you would like to hear on the podcast. Let me know about that stuff. I, I would love to hear that. Um, Oh, and then if you could leave a review, too, for the podcast, that would be super appreciated. Uh, the reviews in, like, in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever, wherever you're listening to this, super help. Um, just drop, like, a star, whatever star review. I won't tell you to do five, but it'd be nice. Uh, so drop a review. You can write a review even, too, if you want. That would be even better. Um, but that's about it. So thanks again for watching. I super appreciate you, you know, listening to the whole show and staying here. Um, And yeah, thanks again. Have a good day. Bye-bye.